Hello, listeners. I'm Amanda. I'm Jamia. I'm Jamila. And we are Live Voices. Hear from librarians of color what speaks to the fullness of their careers, including successes and challenges. How do they do it? Join us to find out more about their Live Voices. Welcome to episode nine. Today we have an interview with Holly Smith. Holly A. Smith is the college archivist at Spelman College. She received her BA in History and Black Studies from the College of William and Mary, an MA in History from Yale University, and an MS in Library and Information Science from Simmons College. She co-authored the article, This Black Woman's Work, Exploring Archival Projects that Embrace the Identity of the Memory Worker, and authored the piece, Radical Love, Documenting Underrepresented Communities Using Principles of Radical Empathy. She is passionate about community archives and archival advocacy related to collections for historically underdocumented communities. So what drew you to archives? I actually became interested in archives, probably the way most people do in a very roundabout way. (laughs) I I didn't know anything about um, library science. Uh, archives, or even museum studies until I was doing an internship in Boston with the um, National Park Service. I did my undergrad in history and black studies, and I used to work in Colonial Williamsburg in the African American Programs Department. So I love the idea of communicating to people about history, especially uh, black history. And I didn't want to teach or go to law school. (laughs) <laughs> so I was doing an internship um, in with the Boston National Historical Park and their Department of Cultural Resources. And my supervisor at the time was really supportive and in doing informational interviews or connecting me with different people. So um, he connected me with a photo archivist at the Boston Athenaeum, a private uh, uh, library that also has a museum and archival collections. And she's the one who, when I kind of told her my interest in background, mentioned, well, you might be interested in library science or museum studies. And I think that was the first time I really thought of it as a career (laughs) or knew it was a thing. So luckily at the time I was in Boston, I was connected with Dr. Tawana Worley, who was at Simmons College in Boston. And she recruited me to the archives program. I think once I understood uh, what archives, you know, really were, that drew me a little more than museums because it seemed broader and really working with kind of the diversity of primary source material. And, um, and it was really wonderful to have, you know, another Black woman mentor in the program. So, yeah, that, that's my roundabout way <laughs> of getting into archives. I love that you had a kind of you know a mentor right out the gate that's great (laughs) yeah it was um really wonderful and dr worley you know just boston itself was a challenge (laughs) to to be in for a variety of reasons so it was really helpful to um have her to navigate i think personally and professionally like she really provided a lot of support through the program mentoring um scholarship help and just kind of navigating what did it mean to be in Boston. (laughs) Yeah, that's useful. Absolutely. (laughs) Um, So as a BIPOC archivist, what do you view as critical to the success of the field? I think one of the main things 
are to see people that look like you <laughs> in the profession and, um, and, and in meaningful ways to not, you know, I know we talk about the importance of representation, but I know what's been the frustrating thing as a black woman in this field to certainly feel like people want to, you know, kind of trot you out or use you as the one, <laughs> but, but to, um, and I've been the only one in professional spaces and settings at professional organizations. So I think true, meaningful, equitable relationships uh, with other BIPOC archivists. And, and especially, I think, working in the field that we work in, we're working with primarily, you know, if you're working with non-diverse collections or you might be working in a predominantly white institution um, and made to feel isolated through microaggressions, I think one of the main thing, and I think this is just important to the profession overall to have a truly, you know, to have a true interest in equity and justice work. Um, and, you know, not diversity just for the sake of having a representative, here's a black person and here's someone from the LGBTQ community. No, we're making actual <laughs> efforts to have a broad representative diverse uh, profession for the betterment of the profession and each other. Um, I think I just get, you know, kind of really frustrated again by those conversations about archives being, you know, well, you're neutral, you know, this is just your job, you know, and I call it the idea of being passive keepers of dead records. Well, archivists, we are very much, and we're not, you know, I think that's one of the most harmful things, especially, you know, as a black woman, a black person to say, you know, the construction of history is not a benign neutral act. Um, or the aiding in the construction of history, because it's not just archives, it's people, it's memory. So I think of us as active, um, we are active in the process of working in, we should be active in the process of collaborating with communities um, to help activate these memories and these materials. And to do that effectively, we need to have, be a diverse workforce. Um, we need to have, and, and to be able to work transparently with communities that we don't identify with um, in a meaningful, respectful, truly collaborative way. Uh, so I think, you know, this is a great question. I think true equity and justice, I said I was going to get away from diversity and inclusion. Sometimes that feels like the thoughts and prayers now. We're learning and we're listening because it, I think unfortunately it's been watered down, but what does it mean to have true equitable representation focus on, you know, justice. And I think that's very meaningful in this profession to, to truly engage in this memory work. Yeah, that's good. I wrote a lot of that down. <laughs> I forgot where I, I heard that from too, Jamia, but I was laughing when he said, you know, we're, li we're listening and we, we're learning is the equivalent of thoughts and prayers in 2020. <laughs> It's so true. So true. You got to have some action behind that. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> As I, you know, people that are, you know, um, believe in prayer, you got to do something too with it. You can't just pray. But, you know, that's just my Faith opinion. without works is dead. But I, that's you what know. it said now. That's what it said. That's what it says. <laughs> I know that's right. <laughs> so this leads perfectly to our next question. So how do you promote equitable practices through your work in the archives? So one of the things that I really 
one of the, the parts of my job that I really enjoy the most, I think it is interacting with people, whether it's people using our collections or people thinking about donating or people with just an interest in archives, curation, memory work, period. So the one thing that I like to do, kind of if I'm going out, you know, particularly as this film an archivist or someone as an archivist, is to kind of be able to break down the idea of sometimes people aren't familiar with what an archivist does, but I've never, and I promise y'all, I'm not just <laughs> saying this from selective memory. I've never not had anybody, regardless of who they are, not say, oh, that sounds very interesting. Um, or it's different. They're like, oh, wow, um, that, you know, they're interested to hear more. So I just like to kind of perpetuate the idea that everybody should be able to have access. It's not just for an elite few or people working on their dissertations. Um, sometimes my physical representation, people say, well, you don't look like you work in a library archives, <laughs> which sometimes can have, you know, provoke the eye roll. But I think especially when I'm, you know, working with students or whatever, and they get interested and they get really excited. I'm like, I'm glad you see, speaking of representation, you see somebody that looks like you. So, you know, you can come in and look at yearbooks or whatever, or if you're interested in this as a profession. So I think another thing, thinking about equitable practice and work in the archives, so not only in my engagement, really trying to make sure I can talk to a variety of people about, you know, if they need to come in and do research, how can I help them with, uh, so but help always sounds a little patronizing. So how can I collaborate or connect with them on their work? And I'd be very grateful we've worked with K through 12 students and teachers, activists, organizers, student um, activists, um, you know, people working on dissertation in a variety of ways. And I just, you know, really like to make sure they know they can come through the doors and we will work with them just as everybody. And I think another way, particularly when I think about whether it's working with donors, institutional donors or individual or with communities around projects is to come with a mindset of this is a true collaboration to not come to someone with a project all figured out. I've unfortunately been in spaces where at PWIs particularly, where it's like, we wanna work with the black community, we wanna help you. Well, what does that even mean? And what black community, <laughs> there's not just one. And, you know, just being cognizant of my own, any kind of biases or, you know, idea just because, you know, as a cis hetero black woman, I can have a lot of blinders and thing, you know, I just want to be cognizant of the fact that, you know, we, we were just joking saying skin folk and kin folk, but just because I'm a black woman doesn't mean I can't still perpetuate harm on other communities, particularly you know, if I don't identify particularly, you know, if, you know, if I'm taking for granted my experiences and not being transparent. Um, so I just try to make sure to treat, you know, to listen a lot too, and to not do a lot of talking when, um, you know, meeting with community partners or other um, community members or possible even donors. Um, and just to try to make sure people feel very heard and respected and their concerns can be aired out and voiced. And I think, um, Maybe lastly, in, you know, in the work with archives or, you know, wonderful opportunities like this to talk to, you know, sister colleagues to, I feel very passionate about working with recruitment initiatives uh, for students of color and feel very fortunate to be at a, a HBCU and to connect and be able to work with and mentor uh, students. So again, just kind of 
whatever outreach I can do to not only amplify the collections of Spellman, because just notwithstanding me being the archivist, like these are amazing collections. <laughs> you know, I can say that as one of the stewards and the primary goal has been to amplify the voices of black women. So it's nice to not even have to justify why that's important on the front end. So, you know, whether it's getting the opportunity, you know, wonderful programs such as a Live Voices podcast, whether it's presenting or writing, you know, doing some journal work just to make sure our voices are in the conversation, me as a black woman archivist, but it's these collections and that, you know, people can have a broader understanding of, you know, these ideas around, you know, radical empathy, equity, equity in the, you know, in the archival collections in the process, but also the profession. I, was that, um, I feel like I went off a little bit there. I hope that was it. <laughs> no, that was perfect. That's perfect because it just ties into, you know, our notion of unlearning things, you know, learning new things, listening, uh, also centering other voices, even though we are Black women, we're, you know, minoritized ourselves, marginalized at times, we still can uplift other voices that people you know, don't consider or don't, or dismiss and all that. So I think that is important to, you know, and uh, you being, you know, thinking about your actable practices. I think it was all good, all good stuff. Thank you, Jamia. And I think <laughs> you make a good point. I think it's, you know, it's almost turned into woke Olympics sometimes for people just to show, well, I'm more aware than you, but I mean, everybody can misstep and, you know, or needs to learn, I think, to your point. And this, this reminds me of another concept that some colleagues of mine, another sister colleague, Shaitra Powell, was on a panel. She's the um, uh, archivist around African-American collections at the Southern Historical Collection at Chapel Hill. And she and some of our other colleagues, um, including Biff Hollingsworth, another dear colleague I worked with, had a conversation around slow archives. So the idea of like, you know, sometimes I think there's, again, there's this rush to do things. There's this rush to, okay, we want to hurry and process things. We want to hurry and do this. And I can understand the idea to make things, you know, available, but sometimes, you know, it can take months or years to build a relationship. And again, if we're talking about getting community buy-in or even processing, there's just the idea of not trying to rush things and taking your time to be intentional. I think sometimes, and I've, you know, been guilty of this too, like, Product, productivity can seem like it has to be movement or how fast you can do something, but <laughs> you can make a rush to do something and realize we've made a fatal mistake, you know, six months into a project, but if you've received the funding, you need to get it done. And it just can create um, a very unfortunate, it go against, I think, what we're trying to do. So the idea of like slowness not being ineffective, but intentional. Um, yeah, and instead of this, you know, and I think to your point, you were saying, you know, there were a lot of institutions that put out statements in terms of supporting Black Lives Matter after the, the murders, particularly of uh, Breonna Taylor and George Floyd. But I think, like you said, a lot of the, you know, statements, it's like, okay, well, what are the actionable items? And then you had the, you know, employees of color, Black people, the institutes saying, well, y'all aren't dealing with the stuff at your own. <laughs> it's, that's the word. Like, you're not supporting our Black life. So how are you going to support Black lives? or all black lives <laughs> and the people that you working with is a black life and you're not right apparently except for these black how lives does that here. work right the black lives here you're not supporting or uplift i'm confused how does that work exactly exactly but you know just all you know the, the show of it all 
just to exactly. say I'm not racist and the performity of it all just it gets under my skin I, I tweet about it all the time but it really does it's really it's so like come on y'all come on and that's the perfect word you know it feels like performative you know justice or allyship or whatever <laughs> Oh, allyship. That's another word. Oh, exactly. I need an accomplice. I need you to be right, on roll. Get with it. Kill <laughs> it with me now. Punches. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, but some of what you're saying also is is part of the problem with all of these, you know, diversity and, uh, you know, initiatives and whatnot is that there's always this other thing that's missing, and I I think it's kind of funny. I don't know if funny is the right word, but you know, we have DEI and now there's this addition of justice and um, which kind of is supposed to be the thing that gets to what has been missing with DEI. <laughs> and I'm like, I just, mm-hmm. this like, is going to continue like these, this alphabet thing. It's just like, we're, it's never ending, right? <laughs> because we're going to have to keep adding things on um, to get to what we're trying to get to, which is, is not working. It's, it's just not working. And I think that's a great point too, Jamila, like, instead of, you know, creating this just alphabet soup of things to tick off or talk at a meeting or to hire somebody, like what actual, and um, colleague Nancy Goodoy at a, an SAA diversity forum years ago, I, I think I really liked her language. Like you said, instead of thinking about it just as diversity and inclusion, thinking about equity and justice, you know, actual kind of that. And, and I, and, uh, excuse me, I'm forgetting the scholar that she mentioned who actually wrote on this. I don't even know if they were necessarily in, in archives, but like you said, just reconceptualizing the way that all people, especially those in leadership and organizations, think about these things, period. It's not just, you know, something to check off the box or say you do or put in a statement, um, but what actionable items are you making? And does that include, like you said, interrogating your own institutional policies, collection development policies, just again, relationship, you know, how you even, yeah. Anyway, just amening what you say. <laughs> no, it's a good point. I think we have to talk about it because the fact that we keep talking around it is part of the problem too. Like, um, you know, if you feel safe enough to do so, or if you have that safety to do so, we need to say like, yes, that statement is is a lovely statement. It's well written. I, God bless you all. But uh, you're not doing anything behind it. And where is the task force? You know, academia loves the task force. So where's the task force? And a committee. And a committee. So where is the task force and the committee to make sure that these these things that you have mentioned in this statement are happening? Exactly. Right. Um, and you should be allowed as a person of, of color, black, indigenous, whatever, to say, this is not working. These are the reasons why. And this needs to be changed. We know that that's the ideal, but there, there should be some action behind it. So if there's no action, then don't release the statement. <laughs> I, that's where I am. I'm like, just don't release Boom. the statement if you don't want to follow it up with action. There, there we go. That's it. Exactly. That's all the time. You don't have to figure right. out the writing or, you know, plural or not. You just, you can mind your business and keep doing what you've been doing, which was nothing. And then you allow those uh, BIPOC people to make their choice and leave that institution and take their greatness with them elsewhere. That's, that's how I feel about it. So, that's what happens. And then there wants to be the conversation of, well, we tried, but exactly. when you have made oh, we, a... They always leave. It's like, I wonder why. Exactly. 
Exactly. <laughs> we just keep going around and around in the circle. So, you know, um, unless they're willing to take these action items, like you're saying, and, and really do something with it, then there's no point. And just say that you don't want people of color at your institution. Exactly. That's fine. It's like, not a priority. <laughs> if, at least you give them, at least you give BIPOC a warning. You, you tell them that they are not welcome there. And then they can make that decision either to go there or elsewhere. They can make that decision to be safe. And, and I think that that's, that's where we need to be at this point. We need to, you know, this library green book um, that they have out, like that, that's what we're going to have to do from now on. Because if you don't want to protect us, like we can make sure that we protect each other. And I think that's what we're, we're moving towards, which is, it's just going to be, I think, overall better instead of waiting for someone to have like a, a miracle moment. It's like, oh, we need to protect all of our employees. <laughs> like, Duh. <laughs> and I so. think no man that's a great point and then like not having unrealistic like like no you know being willing to face you know an institution's egregious behavior I said I, I was going to stop calling microaggressions micro because they're macro um, and then you know it, it's not just individual but I think to um, the point I'm, I apologize I can't remember who said it but you're exactly right. You have these, you know, empty statement or, you know, you have the task force or whatever, and you can make whatever recommendations. But if a particular administration is not going to support it, you know, not that we're expecting top down, you know, kind of change. Often it has been, you know, the people doing the direct work most of the time are doing the exact advocating and clarity. So it really does have to be you know, institutions will have to face those hard truths and individuals. And again, if you can't even be transparent about that, if it's this idea of like, well, we tried, we did this. Um, I think I had a colleague tell me at a particular institution, he was tapped to, I guess, you know, be on this particular diversity and equity commission, but was pretty much told by the particular uh, dean administration, oh, you know, we're not really going to be able to do anything anyway. You know, it's just for show. And so when you have said, you know, institutional person just convening this for whatever. It's like, like you said, well, I already know what this is. And often that labor does have to fall back on the black people, the people of color doing it. So, which is, that's a whole nother, I know, right? Uh, conversation right there. But yeah. Yeah, I think, yeah. It's, it's a lot. We have to, we have a lot to unpack there. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> we, need to, we need to have a, another interview with you just talking about this. <laughs> um, but I'm going to ask you another question that we have on our list. So can you speak um, more about radical empathy and how it influences your work? Absolutely. So um, I really became familiar with, um, this is really critical article by Michelle Caswell, Marika Seifor through a, uh, presentation opportunity to present with some other uh, colleagues who have become quite close <laughs> after that and at the 27th Society of American Archivist um, conference. So I, I'll just um, read over the definition in uh, Marika and Michelle's article, uh, which is titled From Human Rights to Feminist Ethics, Radical Empathy in the Archives. So the um, article states that Quote, this article proposes a shift in the theoretical model used by archivists and archival study scholars to address social justice concerns from that based on individual rights to a model based on feminist ethics. In a feminist ethics approach, archivists are seen as caregivers 
bound to record creators, subjects, users, and communities through a web of mutual effective responsibility. This article proposes four interrelated shifts in these archival relationships based on radical empathy. So I felt like that was a um, beautiful articulation kind of of some of the practices I already found myself working in. Um, as, you know, just being conscious of my own positionality, the desire as a black woman, you know, to work in with primarily African-American materials and within communities that reflect my own experiences, which not everybody wants to do, but that was very important to me. And in the um, article, Michelle and Marika outline um, the four relationships. So it's relationship between the archivist and record creator, relationship between the archivist and record subject, relationship between the user and the archivist, or relationship between the archivist and larger communities. And through um, the presentation with my um, fellow sister archivists and colleagues, we thought of another um, effective relationship uh, between each other, archivists to archivist. Um, you know, in conversations again like this, how we as archivists, librarians, memory workers broadly support each other. And I think the term, the, so somebody asked, how is radical empathy just different than regular empathy? And to me, the idea like you can empathize with somebody, but I, I am a big fan of the word radical. I know that's often used as like unhinged or whatever, but to me, radical means like fundamentally willing to examine something and care about something enough to see it fundamentally shift, even as you shift with it. You know, even if we are uncomfortable in our own thoughts or whatever, but if we can get to a greater whole that serves each other in larger communities better. So to me, that, that's what radical empathy is, I think, willing to fundamentally reimagine the practices of our, the archival profession, including our own, you know, thoughts and to be able to truly operate professionally with a responsibility to the, the many communities we serve and also ourselves. And um, yeah, so, and I'm sorry, I felt like I was getting, <laughs> so back to I think how it um, really influences my work. I think that really had put a great framework on principles that I know we, you know, we just talked about and tried to really, um, try to really practice. And I think it's one of the most powerful frameworks because again, it's not just this kind of westernized, theoretical top down again we just take care of the records and provide them with no context and no, you know i think this one allows for some analysis of systems of oppression in archives such as you know white supremacy homophobia you know sexism ableism to understand how that has played a role in the construction of collections <laughs> whether it's been overt or not um and again, the idea that, you know, archives are just neutral. No, you know, a collection development policy is a political statement. You make a decision on what you will and won't collect. And I feel, you know, having worked in um, a predominantly white institutions as well, um, even in the Southern Historical Collection, I have wonderful colleagues and that's an amazing collection. A lot of the material that's about, you know, black people was not created. Uh, with the intention of highlighting those voices or they're within collections of, you know, plantation owners, slaveholders, white families. Um, and what does that mean <laughs> when you're working in, in collect, or what does that mean to say? And um, I think my 
my colleagues that I work with, they're doing some wonderful work too. And, and Shatra's doing amazing work, again, around interrogating that. So I think, um, and since then, you know, my colleagues that we did the panel in 2017, we just kind of joked, this has taken us on a journey because uh, three of my other uh, dear friends and colleagues, uh, Jasmine Jones, Elvia, Royal Ramirez, and Shannon O'Neill, uh, put in a proposal to do a journal. Um, <clears throat> excuse me, y'all. Throat's a little dry here. <laughs> with the journal of the, put in a proposal to have a special issue on radical empathy with the journal of uh, critical library and information studies. So we've worked with Andrew Lau on that and he's been incredible. So um, even thinking about that journey when we met in 2017, you know, thinking on the heels of a Trump presidency, what that meant you know, the detriment to so many people and communities and just, we all were kind of personally dealing with things. So we say we have lived radical empathy. We have really been able to hold space with each other. So the journal will be coming out in the spring. Um, so we had a lot of wonderful contributors. Yes, thank you. It was, it was a learning lesson, opportunity, but a wonderful exercise in these practices. <laughs> And we, we, I'm really excited. We've got some really great um, contributors. So to really, you know, in, interrogate that great question, you'll ask more how people have found this framework helpful to inform their work or ways that they've already done it. Well, I definitely will be getting that when it comes out in the spring and promoting it. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you all so much. Yeah, it's, um, I, I've never had that experience of uh, editing a journal. And the one, one of the things I think we were really excited to work with, um, J, uh, the journal Critical Library Information Studies because it's open access. It's not behind a paywall, uh, which is really nice. Uh, you know, so people, I mean, should you know, can have open access, which I think is again kind of getting back against you know even that model of you know kind of proprietary knowledge. You're in the end, you can only get this article from. <laughs> you gotta ask ten people. Like, do y'all have access to? <laughs> Which I've had to ask, right? And sometimes we think, oh, I'm an institution. I'm like, oh, we don't have that. Does anybody have? <laughs> so, yeah. I've seen many of those emails go out. Like, <laughs> and I know it's supposed to, then you have some people who are like real sticklers about the whole, you know, this violates the license or, you know. <laughs> and then that's a whole round of conversation, email conversation about that, which is hilarious sometimes to see how that happens. But yeah, those requests, though, come through, you know, every now and then. It's, and someone always, you know, there's always going to be someone who's like, yeah, let me get that for you. And, you know, actually, I feel like I have this kind of off topic, of course. <laughs> but there's this thing where, like, that request comes out. And I'm like, I'll wait and see, like, how quickly is the, uh, is someone going to say, oh, I got it, you know, because <laughs> it happens so, so fast. Everybody is like, oh, rushes to get the article for who <laughs> so. I always wait to see like, uh, like how many minutes is it going to be? <laughs> no, but you know, that's a really good point. Cause if someone asks, I am on it. Like, how can I find this for you? <laughs> like you said, and I, I really, you know, just again, the people saying that vile, you know, like sending an article to somebody is not going to hurt ProQuest or Gary, any of these other, you know, um, and actually thank you for reminding me. One of our dear colleagues, uh, Giordana wrote an article about that for the journal, kind of like operating behind paper. So thank you for that. That reminded me, you know, like 
operating behind paywalls. So it's like, I mean, you know, again, we work, if we're affiliated with the institution, whatever, again, there's the idea that you would even have access. And sometimes we don't have access. So then it's like, well, who has the access? Anyway, I'll, I'll, I, I, I will get off on that soapbox too. So now that's a really, speaking of empathy, you know, just get, get, share somebody the article. It's just, it's one article. No one's asking you to send 50 copies of the journal. Just as a human being and, and empathetic, just collegiality. Like, and like you said, usually it's like a, a clatter, a rush to 50 people respond. So that heartens me to think that most people are thinking how we can support each other. Yeah, I, I love to see it. It's, it's always great to see when that happens. So our last question for you is, uh, how does the legacy of the HBCU transform your archival work? I think um, just working at an institution such as Spelman, but when I think of uh, HBCUs in general history, and I was literally just talking about this with another colleague, I think what is particularly poignant and profound about the history of HBCUs, it's like, you're going to find information that you're not going to find in any other institution. Typically it's, it's not only the history of the institution, but often the surrounding black communities. And we know that historically black colleges and universities were born in, in, you know, because of segregation and discrimination. And I also think about it, education and growth have long been a part of our diverse communities. So it was also a desire and you really, a desire for education, you know, to, you know, and, and arguably <laughs> different institutions have had different, you know, foundings and different stories and trajectories. But I think that that's one of the most powerful things about HBCU archives and history, particularly Spelman. It was founded with the intent to educate women of the African diaspora. It's very clear in its mission and is one of two remaining institutions still with that being the primary mission and just, you know, being able to be one of the stewards and to, again, be here to know that amplifying the stories and voices of diverse black women, how we broadly define ourselves and our intersectional identities is the mission and goal. Like, I think personally that has been such a period of refreshing growth, <laughs> you know, just getting to situate and seeing myself in this work, which I see as a strength and not a detriment. I know that, you know, again, gets all this conversation about neutral divorcing yourself, but that would be doing a disservice to myself, you know, um, what can I contribute, you know, what can I learn from, what can I grow again, what can I examine, what, you know, thoughts that might no longer serve me. So to really, you know, kind of get back to the legacies of HBCUs, it's been you know, and I hope it doesn't sound too idealistic or Pollyanna, but this has really been one of the most ex transformative experiences I had professionally. And also the Spelman Archives, we are actually part of the Women's Center on Spelman campus because there is the um, Atlanta University Center Woodruff Library that serves all the schools in the Atlanta University Center. And there is an archives at uh, AUC, so we work closely with our uh, colleagues there. But Dr. Beverly Gosheftal, um, I mean, a foremother of Black feminist theory, <laughs> uh, is my supervisor. So I have the pleasure of working very closely with her in the Women's Center, which is uh, the, the, excuse me, 
the progressive radical center of student activism and intellectual inquiry on the campus. It houses a comparative women's studies program. Um, every other year does a conference, which I will share with you all. Thank you. Remind me in honor of Tony K. Bambara, you know, so every other year there's a conversation with a black woman feminist and intellectual as this epicenter highlighting research found about black women. And so it's just refreshing to be able to bring my whole self <laughs> to the space and, and in this space of radical progressive inquiry. And I think knowing that Dr. Gasheftal had the desire to, you know, have the archives here to keep them on campus for that in proximity and have that connection. It, it just really, to me, it's like, I, I grew up in Hampton, Virginia. So Hampton was right up the street and always had a love and understanding for HBCU history, campuses, graduates, everything, but just on another level, just really being able to get in Spelman's archives and work closely with my colleagues we, you, you really see how, you know, complex, how resilient, how all, the whole spectrum of experiences in our communities and what we really had to face as, as in our communities, <laughs> speaking of multiple forms of oppression. And yeah, so I just, um, again, kind of going off on the rails and a tangent there, but I just think that the people broadly, need to have a greater understanding and respect and support for HBCU archives and libraries and history. Um, and this kind of gets back to our conversation about everybody wants to clamor to collaborate <laughs> with HBCUs um, for various motives. And I think, unfortunately, often that conversation is framed as, you know, these PWIs or larger institutions are coming to help these institutions. But people, you know, the staff, faculty, students at HBCUs are the experts there is expertise, rich, we're not suffering at a lack. What we don't have might be access to the financial resources, but we're not operating at a deficit with expertise, knowledge, and collections. So I just really hope to, that, our, that idea will continue to permeate. And again, when there's this rush to want to collaborate and clamor, what are the real motivations? And just making sure that people really have a full understanding and appreciation and respect, you know, for the, communities that have served here in the collection. So anyway, that's, that's my sermon, but <laughs> this has truly been, you know, one of the most richest and fulfilling continues to be personal professional experiences that I've ever experienced. That sounds amazing to be able to <laughs> have your whole self at work and enjoy your job and stuff. Sounds great. Thank you. I, I that's amazing. Point. That is. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. That's amazing. Really that's great. <laughs> and, I, and I know it is not lost to me that it has not always been that way for me. And it is yeah. not always, you know, just thinking about when Trump won the presidency, you know, we, we could come in and, you know, be commiserate and share outrage. And several other friends and colleagues were not in spaces where they were safe to share. So that was one instance that I really thought, you know, just really being grateful for not only the other, you know, black women, HBCUs, but this particular space in the Women's Center to be able to articulate shared frustration and anger and rage and all that other, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's just great. And I also like the point you make about um, how there isn't um, a lack of resources in terms of expertise and knowledge um, in these HBCUs and that, you know, these other institutions, while 
you know, the collaborations can be definitely uh, helpful if they're not necessarily saving the day, you know. <laughs> right, right. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, just, you know, being frustrated and really downright upset, you know, being in said types of meetings <laughs> or discussions where that has been the sentiment or the idea or, you know, frankly speaking, sometimes in my own experience, um, um, it's myself is the college archivist and my colleague the assistant archivist. So we are operating, um, we, I say we're a small but mighty team of two, which we are. <laughs> and we have two wonderful student assistants. Um, we've, in the past, we've had wonderful assistants. This um, semester we were out, we were without our two wonderful assistants, uh, Elizabeth and Dahlia, understandably. And so I think, again, when people make these kinds of asks, again, thinking, you know, we're a small staff and, again, kind of thinking about the labor. And I, I think, you know, often there's times of conversation around grants or someone to do it, but I still have to be the primary one to, to facilitate that. And I think sometimes there's this idea of frustration or check in, but again, it makes me think of slow archives. So if you're really interested in working with us, this process or whatever could take a few months, a few years, just based on our, again, like capacity, not our limited expertise and staff. Um, so I think that's another thing that <laughs> has just been a, and a learning lesson for me too, because it's like, I want to do all the things all the time, sometimes, you know, I'm like, this is great. This is we, our collections. We need to do this. But then also like what would really, you know, just as a person, <laughs> what can you truly get done? And, and what is the most important for Spelman archives, notwithstanding any of these kind of extra, if that makes sense, things. So, yeah. Well, that concludes our interview. Was there any um, anything you wanted to add that we didn't uh, cover? No, I think you all are just doing, this is just a wonderful opportunity and just a wonder, speaking of amplifying the voice of memory workers, archivists, librarians, curators of color. So this is such important work and I'm just so elated um, to be here in your wonderful company and in the company of so many other colleagues and, and so excited to amplify your work. And, and thank you for the, um, honor and the opportunity to be here. So I just really appreciate it. Thank you for coming on. Thank yeah, you. we're happy to have you. And, uh, <laughs> yes, and all the, the gems you gave us today. So we're, we're uh, thank you. We were having a collective, you know, it is, it is two way. <laughs> so I am just a reflection of you all. And again, you know, this space again, just it's just, it's such a, a treat to be in fellowship and conversation with other Black women, you know, yeah. information yeah. professionals and memory workers that we do, again, amplify each other and each other's work. So this is a blessing to me, particularly yes. in this year. Mm -hmm. we will be fine. And I think I'll, I'll, one thing, it's funny, you say, I don't even know if I really mentioned the pandemic at all. I mean, it's so obvious. It's part of our fabric, right. but... It's the background. <laughs> is That has certainly fundamentally... <laughs> transformed you know the uh, archival practice but also my own you know kind of it's all affected us in so many ways so um i've been grateful for the grace <laughs> that we've been able to extend ourselves cassandra and i you know trying to still serve researchers remotely and the grace that others have extended you know they reach out and they understand we're at capacity so um this year has brought a lot of you know tragedy and a lot of difficult things is certainly thinking about the pandemic, but the heightened attention to state sanctioned violence against, you know, black and brown people. I've also been encouraged, you know, by the 
by you know the activism that has always existed, but the idea that people are really forced to pay attention in the um, students um, and so being able to work and connect with you know student activists in terms of documenting their own work. Um, a, a sister colleague of mine, Leo Hughes-Watkins, oversees uh, what's known as Project Stand that um, does incredible work around working with student activists at institutions and alumni as well in terms of documenting their experiences within or without institutions. Um, so, you know, it's just, I think even in this year, so much has happened. It's been encouraging to try to, you know, <laughs> see some some good things and hopefully a fundamental shift in the way society works <laughs> uh yeah so I'll, I'll end my benediction with <laughs> i'm hoping you know that we can carry the, the hopes and you know speaking of you know hopes and prayers but legitimate you know true <laughs> hopes and prayers <laughs> <But> <laughs> we hope you learned more about holly a smith we'd like to share a quote with you before we sign off service is the rent we pay for being it is the very purpose of life and not something you do in your spare time. Marion Wright Edelman. Remember to keep walking in your live voices and please follow us on all of our social media pages.